because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. Sitting in for Alex Epstein, this is Don Watkins, Director for Education at the Center for Industrial Progress. And with me is CIP's Head of Research, Stefan Henn. Stefan, welcome to Power Hour. Hey, Don. Welcome back. Uh, yeah, so I was away uh, last episode, and now Alex is away this episode. And uh, I am semi-confident that we will all three of us be back next week. But in the meantime, we have a lot to cover, so let's dive right in with this week's stories. And uh, I think I'll start us off. Democratic presidential hopeful and uh, current governor of Washington, Jay Inslee, came out with an education plan, and a major focus of it was on teaching children about the dangers of climate change. So this is just a couple things from his website. He didn't go into great detail, but he says... Um, that the Department of Education has a critical role to play in ensuring our education system is preparing students at every level to help solve the climate crisis. And by every level, he means K through 12. Then there's another element of the plan where he calls for creating a climate conservation corps, also known as a climate corps, that uh, will put America's greatest resource, its young people, to work together in the domestic and global effort to secure a healthy future. The Corps will provide Americans of all ages and backgrounds service opportunities and climate solutions, and with education skills, job training, and employment opportunities to thrive in building our new clean energy economy. So, uh, I mean, if you think about like what the purpose of education is, so one view is that what you're trying to do is help children form the kind of mind and character that allows them to flourish in whatever they want to do in life. And the other, and uh, I mean, this is, if you go back to the kind of educational theories that were in place when we created the public school system, unfortunately, which were Hey, Stefan, mainly inherited from Germany. The other is that essentially <laughs> what education is supposed to do is it's supposed to mold children into obedient serfs. I mean, that's my, not, that's my language, not how they would put it, but uh, who will carry out a national mission. And, and I think you can guess which one this is. And I mean, in a proper education, you don't ram controversial, complex scientific conclusions down kids' throats in order to turn them into a, quote, resource for your ideological mission. There's just no way that a, that a child is competent to judge climate science or what to do about it. I mean, they don't understand the science, of course, but let alone energy, economics, philosophy, the kinds of things that you actually have to know in order to decide, like, is this a problem? What To what extent it is a problem? What's the best thing to do about it? All that you can do at that age is indoctrinate them and tell them what to think and what to do, which is exactly the opposite of what you, I would want from an education system, what I think most people who actually value human flourishing would want. And I mean, this is true, even if you think that climate is a problem, like even if you think, yeah, this is a real problem, you shouldn't want a bunch of indoctrinated like people running around doing your bidding. And you're because part of what you're doing is you're robbing them of what an actual education is, which is giving them the tools of the ability to think, including the ability to think about moral issues like that. If you think that climate change is a real problem, that is what they need in order to deal with the challenges that they'll face going out into that world. And yet that's precisely what this kind of focus would rob them of. So Stefan, maybe, maybe you think this is actually a great idea and that, uh, uh we not, need... a, not only am I not the typical German, I, I think that's the, the, transfer of this system was a long time ago, so I'm, I'm not sure how many Germans would agree with that today. So my view, of course, is that the feds should, the federal government should have nothing to do with uh, education at all. But it's to me, it's fascinating how people go to this, and I'm sorry, I don't have a different word for that, but th these fascist approaches. So they are teaching like kids and they, and they are saying particularly, well, we need to get them young and get them uh, sort of content instead of method, right? So we, we don't want them to be good thinkers. We want them to be right thinkers. We want to set them on a track where they already 
quote unquote know things like you know how how bad climate change will become and what will be necessary to that. So you can imagine what kind of content will will there be in the curriculum. Something like you know how renewables can save the planet and so on. There's no way kids and even young students can you know critically assess it, or most of them will not be able to critically assess it, and most of them you know look at teachers and think, oh yeah, they are saying the truth all the time. They have it right, and um, it's, it seems like very very difficult to get away from that at a later stage when you're. When the government has already decided what you should think from an early age on, that's that's a very, and I have to repeat it, it's a fascist approach to me. Yeah, I mean, so one of the themes of this podcast is just the completely non-objective way that climate and environmental issues more broadly are discussed in the media and in public. And like that is precisely made possible in part by the fact that there is not an understanding of fundamental things in science, things in math, like people lack that context. And so it's easy to be taken in uh, by the lousy way that things are covered. So like, go remedy that, like make sure that kids are, are numerate and are scientifically literate. And then, you know, we can talk about whether it makes sense for them to, you know, raise issues of climate in 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 schools but in the meantime no hand hands off my kids stefan what's your first story so bloomberg new energy finance which is sort of a consulting and research entity um has published its new energy outlook in this uh, 2019 and this is sort of the uh different approach from a pro-renewable viewpoint to what we've had in an earlier power with uh, BP's statistical review of world energy. Um, and I just, I have no access yet to the entire report, but I they provided some highlights that I feel like uh, there's already enough material so we can comment uh, a little bit on. And uh, so my format will just be to give quotes of their highlights and then uh, give my thoughts on each of them, and maybe Don wants to jump in on any particular point. So uh, in the summary finding, they said um, wind and solar by 2050, uh, uh, wind and solar make up almost 50% of world energy in 2050. And they quote then 50 by 50. This is sort of the, the label for this. And help put the power sector on track for two degrees to at least 2030. Um so this is a, the two degrees Celsius maximum warming um, in the 21st century goal that is uh, connected to the Paris Climate Accord and various programs. And so they, they pro project in their scenario that almost 50% of world energy or, or world electricity will be um, from wind and solar only. So this is, first of all, the dimension is this is global. This is not just a oh, one country or you know Europe or whoever is a, is a leader currently in that. But this is global. This includes all of the developing economies that are still at a fraction of energy consumption of the average German or American or uh, developed nation uh, citizen. So this is a this is a giant projection. This is this is much higher than what the IEA, the International Energy Agency, or other. Uh, institutions would project. And uh, we also have to recognize that most of the energy infrastructure that we, we are building today is locked in for many decades. So when we are building a new gas-fired power plant today, or nuclear power plant or coal power plant, this is locked in for many decades, unless you're willing to cripple your economy and throw a lot of uh, good capital away. Uh, so this is this is a very strong prediction already. Um, and then they have some unrealistic numbers in the details. So, for example, 80% renewables in Europe by 2080. Um, okay, 2080 is a long time away, but yeah, I, I don't even believe in that, even though Europe uh, has higher uh, wind and solar numbers than, uh, than other parts of the world. And so the next quote is, wind and solar are now cheapest across more than two-thirds of the world. By 2030, they undercut commissioned coal and gas almost everywhere. And we have discussed this many times on Power Hour, solar and wind, uh, the levelized cost of them 
have been lowered substantially, of course, over the past decade or so. Uh, but this is not equivalent to the actual total cost of the system that they incur. So there's a, there's a reason why everywhere where solar and wind are adapted uh, to a large degree, they make the electricity system actually uh, more expensive. So Germany, Denmark, Spain had bad experiences, Ontario had bad experiences, Colorado had bad experiences with more wind and solar. So we, we see that the costs escalate there, and then they pretend on the basis of the uh, just the kilowatt hour price uh, for the solar uh, generator or the wind generator that this would be the is already the cheapest and will be uh, you know undercutting everything in in something like ten or twelve years. So that's a, that's a very unrealistic assumption in my view. The next quote is consumer energy decisions such as rooftop solar and behind the meter batteries help shape an increasingly decentralized grid the world over. So what does behind the meter mean? That means you build a battery in your basement and then you primarily feed your solar rooftop energy into that battery instead of the power grid. And you're a sort of an autark uh, self-supplying entity. And you can even provide something like a storage services to the power grid, right? So you're making money. And this is... This is a very insane uh, economic assumption to me, because what does it mean? A decentralized power grid where everyone has a rooftop solar installation and a battery in the basement behind the meter, that would mean that you're making a very stupid capital allocation at scale, right? Because you're building a small scale uh, system in every house instead of building one big entity instead of building one big solar power plant somewhere in the desert where it's, where it's most efficient as it can be or pooling the storage capacity into one big battery you're building a lot of small inefficient units in every basement and this is super expensive of course this is like manufacturing cars in a small shop you know with a few guys building the same car instead of the mass production plant that you know ford or gm would use this is this is an insane assumption and then the assumption might be that on, on a global level you know people in Af africa who can't afford the the standard coal power plant the centralized power plant will do that to charge the tesla i i don't think so so the, the future energy consumption will come from mostly from now developing countries and i don't, I don't think they will go that road and uh, in particular behind the meter thing so that's a, that's a very unrealistic assumption again Uh, and then they have another projection that batteries, gas peakers, and dynamic demand will help wind and solar reach more than 80% penetration in some markets. So they are, they are predicting batteries, gas peakers, and dynamic demand. What does that mean? So the battery technology, which is now super expensive on a per kilowatt hour basis, will further plummet in prices. Then they curiously include gas peakers in there although we've just learned that batteries will be super cheap, allegedly, so why use a gas peaker at all? You, you have just expensive gas infrastructure when you are having batteries anyways, and they are uh, allegedly more economic. And then dynamic demand. And dynamic demand is a very raises red flags with me because dynamic demand usually means we will uh, sort of deny you access to the power on demand that you would need or want at any given moment because it doesn't fit into the production cycle of solar and wind and whatever storage capacity is available. So this is this is a really interesting assumption that people would actually accept or industries even, big industry producers, you know, that you could curtail their, their demand on power and just uh, um, shut them down momentarily. So I don't, I don't think that works on a local scale and on a global scale, I think that's totally unfeasible. Um, so I'll just continue with, with a few more. So coal continues to grow in Asia, but collapses everywhere else and peaks globally in 2026. So that's a very precise short-term prediction we'll, we'll see in seven years, I guess. I, I don't believe in it. I think China just picked up pace in coal consumption recently, and it pretty much depends on their economic development. And then again, Most of the future energy and, and power consumption will come from now developing countries now that are now poor. And uh, so I don't see that at all. I mean, my reaction to this 
So you think, what is the purpose of predictions, right? And the reason to make predictions is that you're trying to guide current action. And so like if if you're a business, you want the best predictions possible so that you can make the best business decisions. But often these kind of public decision or these public projections made by people with no skin in the game, um, they're they're they come from a perspective you want people to take actions like banning fossil fuels. And so what you're going to predict is that like, look, fossil fuels are inevitably going to be banned. And so for instance, investors, yeah, you shouldn't invest in them because you're going to lose out on your investment. And oh yeah, wind and solar will solve everything affordably. So like, let's subsidize them and ban alternatives. And we don't have to worry because look, we have predictions that every, like we're just going to have uh, affordable solar and wind taking over the world. And the, and so, I mean, my policy is basically, I never trust predictions. And in part, it's that like people have a very bad track record for predictions in most things. Um, and I mean, to my knowledge, Bloomberg has no track record. Uh, I, it'd be interesting to go back and look at Bloomberg, which is, you know, concentrated in the financial, you know, center of the financial universe, how, predictive they were of what was going to happen to this, you know, to the economy and the stock market and the housing market. Um, what was that, you know, in uh, 2008? And, yeah. and yeah, now it's we're going to predict what's going to happen to like, what's going to be on people's rooftops and in their garages in 2080. Like it is, it's like clearly motivated and clearly I think crazy, but the the craziness has a real purpose to it. That it's they're trying to get people to buy into a certain conclusion, and so you know my question was, all right, how like put real skin in the game? Like, okay, we agree that if in ten years we are our predictions are off, that we will just ne- you know we'll close shop. Like, I would like to see something like that. Somebody actually stand behind their predictions rather than just throw them out and then get you know a lot of attention for it. Yeah, I, I agree that there's some some strong motivation behind that. It's not maybe even a, a sort of conspiracy where everyone says we will we will do this thing. It's just that everyone knows what uh, a rosy prediction for renewable business would be, right? And uh, so I just want to to finish by adding three points to that very quickly. So. One contradictory thing that I predict is that gas fire power grows by 0.6% per year to 2050. So on average, every year, gas uh, fire power plants capacity will actually grow grow globally. And this, to me, contradicts the claim that by 2030, everything will be undercut by wind and solar and batteries. So that doesn't make sense to me to start with. And then they also say, well, for... For the two degree um, uh, warming trajectory to avoid the two degree warming, we need uh, it, again additional zero carbon technologies and, and more things that do that or even suck CO2 out of the atmosphere or something like that. So, it, all of this, this giant like Green New Deal style overhaul of the power sector globally on a global scale in every country isn't even enough to serve that goal. And then finally, as is so often the case, for nuclear, they predict uh, even a percentage decline globally. So the one technology where I would say, okay, so this has a short long term to significantly reduce global CO2 emissions by replacing a lot of fossil fuels and and catching up with fossil fuels uh, that they predict is, you know, nowhere, not even stagnating, it's declining overall. So that definitely is a hint at uh, at some uh, attitude, I would say. All right. So my next story, New York recently passed a Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act that would require 85% reduction in greenhouse gases from 1990 levels by 2050. And this is across all sectors of the economy. So this is not just electricity. And nobody really knows how the law will be implemented, but the Wall Street Journal reports on the concern by the state's manufacturing industry, which is very greenhouse gas intensive. And so as the Wall Street Journal puts it, the the state's manufacturing industry is left in a holding pattern that has companies pondering worst case scenarios. 
And I mean, basically the problem is that they're in a super competitive field where increased costs, even small ones, let alone major new costs uh, they could face that their competitors don't face could cause them to lose business or go out of business. And I mean, that alone is bad, but the the story also catalogs some responses uh, from the people who are supportive of New York's plans. So State Senator Todd Kaminsky, who's a Long Island Democrat and sponsor of the bill, said that, well, he understands the challenges of those in industry face, quote, they're in a globally competitive marketplace where every penny matters and they're just trying to keep their prices down. And I get that, he says. And I think you can sense a but coming and indeed it does. But I think everyone needs to be rolling in the same direction. And you just think like, imagine a newspaper article where one of these companies, these manufacturing companies slash salaries for employees who were, and the employees were worried, like, how am I going to pay my rent? How am I going to, you know, keep my kids in college? And the reaction from the bosses was, I get that, but I think everybody needs to be rolling in the same direction. I mean, there'd be, it would be complete outrage. And yet, like, this is just, yeah, uh, I get that you're concerned with catastrophic impacts to your business, but hey, we, we need to do what we need to do and you should get on board. Um, and then the article notes another reaction that uh, it says, while the concerns of the business community are valid, it is unlikely that the law will lead to a mass departure of manufacturing from New York, said Janet Peace, the senior vice president of policy and business strategy for the environmental not-for-profit Center for Climate and Energy Solutions. And then she's directly quoted, fear of trade exposure is real, she said. And here's the but. But in a lot of cases, it's been overblown. Miss Peace expects companies can adapt. You give people a reason to innovate. This is a quote. And people do, she said. But you kind of have to push and pull people over time. Now, I've spent a lot of time studying the founding fathers of this country. And like you get a lot of analysis about like how government is a servant, not a master. The individual citizen is sovereign, not our elected representatives who, you know, after all, are there to represent, not rule us. And like nowhere have I encountered any discussion of how they should push and pull people. But it's you just see how lightly the fate of people's livelihoods and the and, and of whole industries and of the economy is. It's let's pass this plan in a few years or we'll figure out what it means and whether or not you'll have a business and whether or not New York will have a manufacturing industry. And the people who worry, nah, some not-for-profit environmentalist is pretty sure it's not going to be that big a deal, right? And you know, I think there's a tendency to give leaders the benefit of the doubt. Like, yeah, they wouldn't do anything that was genuinely catastrophic. Um, but I mean, like one of the lessons of the 20th century should have been like, yeah, they actually would. People, um, the people who claimed then to know how to run an economy it, in every form of socialism or communism, um, they didn't know, like they couldn't do it. And it wasn't even that interesting to, to them. The whole attitude of people who grab this kind of power tends to be like, I'll tell you what to do and you figure out how to make it work. Like I demand that we lower emissions by 85% and then some bureaucrats can come, come out with some fine parse rules. And then the people in industry actually have to achieve it and figure out how to keep producing the stuff that we all need in order to live. And yeah, all those details, that's not my concern as the person in power. Like you figure out how to compete. I'll just make it really hard, if not impossible, and take the moral credit for allegedly like saving us from catastrophe and like the fallout, you know, if you have to shut your doors, like what that does to your life and what it does to those neighborhoods and what it does to your employees, like you'll have to live with it and I won't even hear about it. And so it's just... um the this complete lack of responsibility and even an interest in thinking through the the real genuine consequences is incredibly disturbing and the kind of lightness with which people take the actual lives of the individuals who have to bear the consequences i think is unconscionable stefan
Yeah, I uh, think that's a typical uh, thing for the central planner types that they uh, have no clue how to do things themselves. They don't know how hard it is or what the situation is. And they just say, well, yeah, people will be able to adapt. You know, work every time. So and then they will never be personally responsible on any of that. So they will not have to pay anyone uh, who loses his job or, you know, loses his business, something like that. So, but there's also sometimes a fallacy where we, you know, measure things against the status quo instead of what would be possible, right? So if, if someone says, well, the California power grid works, right? But yeah, but it's pretty expensive. So the question would be like, how great could it be if the central planners hadn't ruined it already to the degree that they have? And uh, yeah, that, that's a that's a perspective that we should take. What what would be the possibility if we hadn't these bad policies already in place? And then we can think about like how ruinous this, this kind of thing could be when absolute amateurs who have no idea how hard it is to do the, these jobs that the manufacturers do uh, intrude in their businesses. Yeah, I think that's a really important point because what will often happen is that it, the people passing these kinds of controls will say, look, industry's always saying the sky is going to fall. Look, everything's okay. But like your your point of comparison is like what it should be what things could have been. And uh, I mean, just to, like one concrete illustration, I forget who was making this point and whether we even talked about it in the podcast, but um, someone was pointing out that like, you know, energy costs have increased in the US. But it, like, if you look at the, you know, um, you know, the fuel costs of fossil fuels, like they should have fallen. And so the fact that they have, you know, stayed the same or increased is an illustration of like, that solar and wind have prevented uh or at least an indication the solar and wind have prevented that from us uh, prevented us from enjoying the the fruits of our dramatic increase in energy and so I've, i i would like to see a lot more of that quantified and just as many examples of where you can try to get a sense of what was possible because that's it, it's often very hard to do and usually you just have to do it kind of as a thought experiment, like what would have happened to the computer revolution if we had, um, you know, not had the energy and, uh, you know, the, to engage in it? Like, where would we be if fracking had been banned when it initially came out? Like, you have to do these kind of backward thoughts, thought experiments. But the more that you can have and try to try to concretize and, and quantify these comparison points, like the more outrageous and, and, and tragic it is, um, that you have these kinds of limitations on our on our upside let alone the fact that it really can be that there the catastrophic downsides come true and the more that you say well like look the last you know 10,000 controls didn't completely obliterate your ability to produce like eventually that bill can come due i mean that's one of the themes of a book that we talk about a lot in this uh show atlas shrugged which is like they're get you can reach a tipping point, if you will, um, where you strangle your production so much that it can't continue. And I mean, in fact, that's what we're seeing in Venezuela, where it's, you know, like for years, hey, look, our socials program's not that bad. And then you realize, oh, it's just being kept alive by oil prices. And then once that, you know, once that protection uh, is gone, then you you reveal the kind of hollow shell that you know had once been a functioning economy stefan what's your next story so we've been talking a lot on power Hour about um uh, you know the enthusiasm so some people show for new technologies from solar and wind to battery technologies and so on so i just want to uh, give you two recent news stories that i uh, ran into and that uh, i found a an interesting illustration of the this rosy picture and, and how it uh, comes to be that so many people believe that, oh, yeah, you can do everything in battery and electric, particularly in transport, which is a very important sector, of course. And so the first story uh, in this category is um, from Reuters, and uh, their headline is, the first battery-powered cruise ship sails for the Arctic. 
And so from this headline, you would think, oh, wow, this uh, battery business is really doing doing a good job, you know, decreasing cost and, and making batteries work over long distances and so on. And so the, this is about a 500-passenger cruise ship, the Roald Amundsen, Amundsen. Uh, I think it's from a from a um, ex- Arctic explorer, um, and that is quote unquote partially powered by batteries, <laughs> and so uh, it will mainly run on marine uh, gas oil, which is somewhat similar to diesel. So it, uh, it's cleaner burning than bunker fuel, but it's fossil fuel, of course. And uh, the ship's battery pack enables it to run on batteries around 45 to 60 minutes. And so later the article says that uh, this cruise ship can you know, run for like uh, 18 to 20 days. So I calculated around 0.2% of the total run would be from batteries. So it's not even auxiliary machinery. Um, and so they expect on ideal conditions that it will reduce uh, fuel consumption and uh, 20% in carbon dioxide emissions. Um, and then there, there was a curious sentence in that article, uh, quoting someone from the, um, I think it was the, the operator of the ship. And he said, excessive energy from the engines, uh, it will take excessive energy from the engines and put into the battery when the ship doesn't need it. And so th- that sounded like a perpetuum mobile to me. It's like excessive energy from, from the main engine and take it into the battery, and then it will save fuel. How is that supposed to work, right? Because if you burn the fuel in the main engine, and then you charge the battery with that, and then you discharge the battery again to run the secondary electric engine, you are having a lot of losses along the way for the same fuel energy, right? So this cannot work. So I assume they are mixing up a lot of things. And so they, they might save some fuel when they charge the battery in port, when they are actually in port, and maybe they get a free charge from that or whatever. But we still would have to see the um, overall uh, life cycle emissions and, and fuel use in the electric power system there, of course. So this, this article is lacking a lot of crucial information to actually assess all the, all the things necessary to see whether that makes sense. But it's... it's uh, leaving them out. But the headline was, of course, uh, the first battery-powered cruise ship, which it is not. Like, this is a tiny fraction of the actual propulsion of this ship. Um, the second story that is um, from the from the truck transport sector, um, this time from Germany, and the news magazine Focus, which is a major news magazine in Germany, uh, ran a story recently um, of a taxpayer watchdog, the Bund der Steuerzahler, translate this to Union of Taxpayers, and they've criticized a project financed by the German Environmental Ministry, and they had overhead power lines for trucks. And so the idea is that you, they, they actually had this, um, had a piece of a German autobahn uh, constructed uh, overhead power line there, and then they created some trucks that had an, had an uh, could tap into that, you know? So they were hybrid heavy duty trucks with a diesel engine, but also an electric engine. And every time they went on this uh, short uh, piece of autobahn where where they actually had this overhead power line, they could tap into uh, the power and then use the electric engine. And so now that the testing has ended, they found out that uh, instead of the previously hyped 25% of fuel uh, savings, they only get 10% reduction in fuel consumption. And uh, the, the truck manufacturer, Scania, still said this is good progress in sustainable transport. So, But you immediately see some problems here. One is uh, the hybrid truck, of course, will be a lot more expensive because it has actually two engines. Um, in it than a conventional truck. And then you have the next problem is that you will need a lot of infrastructure built on a German highway system, right? And then this even escalates because much of the German road transport, the the heavy duty trucks are not actually German trucks. So you have to coordinate this with the French and the Polish truck companies and so on. So everyone has to adapt to that infrastructure thing. Everyone has to 
sort of make it work so you can have international transport going through Central Europe. And so there are a lot of problems I see with this. It was not as advertised, but of course, at the time it was hyped as, you know, hey, we can make truck transport on German highways sustainable. And so what I, I think all of these things have in, in common is the theme that, oh, the technology is here. So some government entity or someone who's willing to sacrifice himself throws a lot of money on this kind of test project, then it turns out that it's this is only a tiny fraction, doesn't scale, doesn't have good economics, and it pretty much looks like a failed project from the start, just on the basic physics and, and engineering parts of it. But nevertheless, a lot of people, of course, profit from this. So a truck company is you know, super happy if the German government jumps in and gets them extra money for their brand new hybrid trucks that are, you know, of course, more expensive than conventional trucks. And But this will never scale. I don't, I don't see this being adapted worldwide and, you know, being a real thing. And these trucks, of course, need to have a diesel engine. So as soon as they get off the highway and have to deliver some something, they need still a diesel engine. So they are super heavy. They have two engines. They have, you know, double infrastructure and so on. So it's, it doesn't make sense from the start, but this is what you get when government policy drives the kind of innovation. I mean, part of what this highlights as well is just the superiority of fossil fuels, right? Like, look how much they're struggling and then celebrating the great achievement of creating something that works way less well than what we already have. And it's like, you know, you say, oh my gosh, these bridges that we're making out of concrete and steel are so carbon intensive. So like I came up with this wooden bridge that, you know, is going to collapse under anything bigger than a scooter. Like that is not innovation. That's regress. And like the, the what we should be really concerned with is innovation. Like, you know, I, I'm all for it. If somebody really like wants to, you know, come up with like electrified vehicles that are superior to what we have today, like that, like that could be a really amazing advance um, or any other kind of vehicle. Uh, but this idea that we're just going to try to like copy what fossil fuels do superlatively in a way that is completely inferior, just because it allows us to get the moral credit for saying that we're green, let alone whether they'd really calculate like what, like, would you actually save uh, you know, it, it, like what would really be the overall impact on on emissions if you have um, these things like the batteries involved in making a ship actually run for more than 45 minutes or in setting up and maintaining and powering, you know, this massive transportation electric grid. Like there's not a real thought to whether they're achieving that goal. It's just we want moral status for something that we can like superficially say is green and yet it's just way worse. My next story is a, a report from Axios that I found really interesting. So they're referring to a new study, which of course is a dirty word with us, but this one seems pretty interesting and definitely plausible, um, published in, in the journal Nature that finds that existing energy infrastructure, in particular power plants um, that are that if you look at what their expected lifetime impact is, they're already the, we have already invested in infrastructure that would put us over the uh, emissions goals required to keep us at 1.5 degrees uh, Celsius um, temperatures from going above 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. And they they find they find that uh, projected cumulative emissions from existing infrastructure, roughly 658 gigatons, are much higher than the estimated remaining 1.5 degrees Celsius budget, and that any shot at 1.5 degrees Celsius likely means shutting down lots of power plants before the end of the roughly 40-year lifetimes, and. Um, I think it's important to really have clear in your mind what it means to shut down something like a power plant before it, the end of its economically useful time span. And uh, 
Steph, and you can tell me if you think this analogy is problematic, but I mean, to me, it's just like, imagine you buy a car and a couple years later, someone says, oh, it's not green enough. So they force you to like turn it into the scrapyard and buy an expensive EV that you have to stand around for hours and, and uh, while it charges. And meanwhile, you're still paying off your old car that you can't use and you don't get to benefit from those years where you could have driven without a car payment after you would have paid it off. And like, that is essentially the ideal situation for the greens is that we're in that state of paying monumentally more money for uh, than we otherwise would because they would be horrified if we use the plants long enough to pay them off, let alone to the end of their useful lifespan, which is precisely what's ideal from a cost perspective. And so like there just needs to be real honesty about the uh, the. Uh, the plausibility of achieving these climate goals and there needs to be an honesty about the costs of trying to achieve them and neither one is part of today's debate yeah so i like the analogy it's a sort of cash for clunkers fallacy where the government pays you an amount of money to destroy a perfectly good car before it's it's true end of life And then you sort of have produced cost to the economy, but because the government subsidized you, you don't care about that that much. And uh, yeah, so stranded assets, uh, quote unquote, things that have to be retired before their, their real end of life, that sometimes happens if there's a true innovation, right? So there can be economically obsolete assets that are not yet uh, worn out uh, so that they need to be replaced, right? So you sometimes have that. But in this case, of course, it would be a forced retire of primarily coal and natural gas power plants. And I would say the 40-year lifetime, that's uh, not particularly optimistic. So with a nuclear power plant, you can have 60, 80 years of useful life and you know some large coal most units. coal plants most yeah, coal yeah, plants yeah, yeah. are around 60 years yeah so large coal plants can have more than 40 years of course of useful life so we, we have locked uh, a lot in and so all of this is based on you know if the ipcc not only the ipcc temperature models are correct or the average of the models we have to say because the models the different model runs tell us different things they just in the IPCC reports, they just take this uh, mean or the average of the model runs, and then they say they go with that because it's closer to the uh, to the actual temperature record. And then, and then you have to believe into the impact that this warming will have, and in the economic damage. And then you would have to compare that with you know what would be the alternative if we let the the coal power plants run for their useful life. Right, so there, there's no careful analysis of this. It's just taking the carbon budget, quote unquote, and they have a wide margin. They have like, I don't know, a 20 percent margin between the lower and upper limits, I believe, in, in the paper, uh, something like that. And so this is this is questionable calculations, but it's uh, yeah, I, I th it's difficult to ascribe motive to people, but I think a lot of the deep ecologists and the green believers, they truly would like to see a lot of economic damage from such policies. So if your goal is to actually degre decrease a human footprint on the planet, you know, like the Paul Alec types, you know, saying we, we are over the carrying capacity, then you want uh, economic hardship because a growing economy is incompatible with, uh, you know, less resource use and, and less impact. All right, Stefan, time for your last story and uh, feel free to disagree with it. I know that you have a, a kind of a cute story about Legos. Uh, I have something to say about. So um, if you want to do that one, that's great. Otherwise, uh, whatever's, whatever's on top of your mind right now. Uh, yeah, sure, we can do the Lego story. So um, Lego right now tries to find a quote unquote sustainable alternative to the best material, uh, which they are using right now, which is plastics. And hat tip to our listener, Charlie, for pointing us to the story. Um, so we receive a lot of recommendations via email. So if you have good stories, feel free to email us. Um, so th this was in a, in a recent Wall Street Journal story, and it uh, featured the actual struggle of Toymaker Lego to find plant-based alternatives to the, to the material 
uh, to the plastic they use right now to manufacture their world famous bricks. And uh, the challenge has been going on for seven years now, and their ultimate goal is by around 2030 to have a viable alternative. And in last year, there was a pilot program with bricks made of sugar cane. So I have no information about how well that went, but I, I don't see I don't see them in the shops right now. So I guess it's I, as a as a parent, I am highly. Uh, I, I mean, talk about renewable. Like, if I bought my kids sugar Legos, I would not have any sugar Legos left in fifteen minutes. <laughs> okay, so I, I assume they will treat the sugar cane um, raw mass with something that right. doesn't make them edible. I guess. Um, so the overall goal, of course, is to reduce the carbon footprint. They use natural gas to produce the plastics in some Chinese factory. Uh, I think we had a previous, I don't know whether it's a power, power hour or power search, that it was uh, that they had some solar rooftop on the Chinese factory. And that was totally ridiculous because, of course, they used the power grid and, and a lot of natural gas to produce, to manufacture the bricks. But okay, so... Um, so they, they were looking into recycled materials and plant-based materials and so on. And so just um, there's this guy, uh, Tim Brooks, who is the head of uh, environmental responsibility at Lego. And here are some quotes from, from him. So Lego tried making pieces from corn, but they were too soft. Its wheat-based bricks didn't absorb color evenly or have the uh, requisite shine. Bricks made from other materials proved too hard to pull apart broke or had what uh, executives call creep when bricks lose their grip and collapse. So that, that's a quote from the Wall Street Journal article. And then uh, Guy Brooks, Tim Guy Brooks said, it's a bit like putting uh, the man on the moon. So this is a giant effort for Lego. They are really struggling to find a better material. And then the question to me is why? Why do you need them to be sort of degradable or, or something like that? So, the trend seems to be, oh, we want to avoid plastics because they are not degradable or end in the ocean. And I don't think that's true. I think most of the Legos in the developed world definitely land in some landfill or get burned. And so they get properly disposed of. And if you think about what do you want in a Lego brick, you want to, to be, uh, you know, um, affordable. You want to be, it to be durable. You want it to be safe and stable. So your kid doesn't chew on it and, you know, gets, a, gets an injury or, you know, swallows it and then gets some chemical reaction in the stomach or something like that, right? So it's very, very hard to imagine a better material than plastics, right? So this is a real challenge. It's really like putting a man on the moon. So it, it doesn't occur to me that you actually need to change the recipe, Right, because this is a good material for its purpose. You don't, you wouldn't say, "Oh, car engines are made of steel or aluminum," but we really want something sustainable. So let's let's make it out of sugar cane or corn. So that's that's nonsense. You just you just use the best material, and if there's a waste issue, you solve the waste issue. And you know, if you can do it better or more affordable with something else, yeah, you you search for alternatives, but you don't, you know, destroy the product or have it have worse properties just to be quote unquote uh, degradable or sustainable or green or something. That's that's not really a good business strategy, I think. Yeah, there is. I mean, really, the 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 man on the moon project they should be engaged in is how do they have a Lego that does not end up uh landing on the floor or it, i guess the the eternal problem of the parent and i think there's a bunch of memes online it's just you're walking across the carpet and you suddenly yeah. step on a lego and it's the most gut-wrenching pain surprisingly bad um but the, the there's a quote from brooks that you didn't mention that i is like made my jaw drop he says ultimately we want a zero impact product and like, okay, well, close your doors, right? Because there's no such thing. Like there can't be yeah. such a thing because production means impact. Like think about the impact involved. Like if you're going to use sugar, like do you think there's no impact that's involved in like the agriculture and transportation and transformation of sugar? Like that is that is what production is. It is transformation. And there's, I mean, there's something so ungrateful about this. Like, why does Lego exist? 
it's and it, i mean it, partly it's because they're made of plastics which come from fossil fuels like that's true but it's it's more widely because we have a high impact civilization that made us so rich that kids could actually have toys rather than here go play in this branch or more likely here go tend to the farm so that we don't starve and then it's well impact is immoral so we should have zero impact and and then to make matters worse uh, we're going to demonize others for their impacts by lying about our own. So Lego is one of the companies that makes one of these phony 100% renewable energy claims. And um, and so, you know, never mind that our whole existence as a company and as individuals hinges on impact. The The only thing that is zero impact is zero humans. Yeah, I think that aligns well with what the Sierra Club said, like, don't have kids. It multiplies your carbon footprint, right? So fewer humans, that, that's the goal. And if, if that's Lego's goal, I don't think they will make a lot of money with that. But it, <laughs> yeah. one more point to that story. You mentioned, um, you know, having having the sugarcane impact. And actually, I think if you use agricultural products, it might have a much bigger impact because we've seen this with plastic bags versus cotton bags, for example, where you need to use the cotton bag thousands and thousands of times over to have the same footprint than a plastic bag of the same size. So it could easily be that you end up actually having a much greater impact, but maybe in some other country where they don't account for it. So it's not, it's a fairly fairly bogus venture there i guess yeah and i mean this is just there's this like just as things like hydro and nuclear get labeled as non-green and without actually like there's no real consideration of are they safe what's their impact on our environment um it's just they're demonized for these kind of reasons that don't involve looking at the full context of their impacts Uh, I think the same thing has happened to plastic. It's that you don't actually look at its full impact compared to alternatives. Um, it's just, it's put on the, you know, the non-green list and then it's completely vilified and then people irrationally try to avoid it in a way that is, that is not like makes no sense from the perspective of human flourishing. All right. That's everything on our plate for this week. If you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email me, Don Watkins, at don at industrialprogress.net. And if you have any interest in a speech by Alex, by me, or anyone else on our team, we've got a growing lineup of great speakers at all different price points. And you can email me about that at don at industrialprogress.net. And if you're interested in help with messaging, if you have an organization that has a high stakes messaging project, and you'd like possibly to be a client of ours, you can let me know that as well. You can subscribe and should subscribe to our newsletter at alexepsteinlist.com. And uh, that is it for this week. So hope everybody enjoyed the episode and we will be back hopefully with Alex next week with some more great topics. Until then, I'm Don Watkins and this has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.